What is up, freaks? This is Jigsaw from... Oh, what the fuck was that? It's all. You want to play a game? That's all I got. It's actually Marty Ben. To introduce this rip of TFTC, this rip is brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. Unchained Capital is here to bring you financial services, to bring you security, to bring you education, to bring you white glove concierge service that'll take you from zero to having a two or three multi-sig vault set up where you hold two keys and Unchained holds one key. This is important. You eliminate single points of failure. If you have all your Bitcoin on an exchange, that is a single point of failure. Bitcoin exchanges are known to get hacked. They're known to be targets of regulatory scrutiny. One day you could wake up, you can either not have your Bitcoin because the exchange lost it or not have access to it because somebody went to the exchange and said, don't give the freak access to his Bitcoin just because we said so. Unchained helps you eliminate that single party risk, okay? By creating a two or three signature vault, a multi-sig vault where you hold two keys again. So you have full control of your Bitcoin as long as you have those two keys. Not even Unchained can prevent you from moving those Bitcoin. You can move them whenever you want. Um, but Unchained does have a key in case you get in a pinch and you need them uh, to, to move your Bitcoin. On top of this, they're providing financial services. They have a lending desk. They have an IRA product. Uh, they're they're building out a, a banger, banger team. Go check out everything they have going on at unchained.com. Unchained.com. Use the code TFTC. If you want to do the white glove kind of share service, you'll get $50 off that package. Comes with video conference calls, hardware wallets, and a thousand cuck bucks worth of sats dumped in your vault once it's all set up. This rip was also brought to you by good friends at Brains. 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 The team with the brains to bring you the Brains OS Plus firmware that's going to help you stack more sats with your ASICs. If you're in the mining world and you have an ASIC, one of those computers that, that produces hashes that allow you to connect to a mining pool that then pays you in sats for contributing to producing hashes that allow you to add blocks of transactions to the Bitcoin network. Brains OS Plus firmware. Uh, if you download it on an ASIC, if that ASIC is compatible, it's going to help you stack more sats because you're going to be producing more hashes, uh, which is going to get you more sats at the end of the day from uh, the mining pool or your your own pool, your, your own self-mining um, operation if you have one. Uh, Brains OS Plus firmware is the firmware that Brains is working on. They're also the team behind Slush Pool, which is the oldest mining pool in Bitcoin's existence, the first ever mining pool. It's, it's survived. A lot have, have come and gone, but Slush Pool has remained steadfast, a stalwart in the mining pool industry. If you're using Brains OS Plus firmware on your ASIC and you point your hash at Slush Pool, you're going to get 0% fees from Slush Pool. So um, that's a good perk. You don't have to point your Brains OS Plus firmware uh, enabled ASIC at Slush pool. However, if you do, you get those fees uh, waived, the, the pool fees. Uh, they've got insights.brains.com, an incredible website that'll uh, allow you to get a, a whole perspective of the mining industry, profitability, hash rate, difficulty, pool distribution, uh, the you know, profitability of individual ASIC models, the, the whole shabam, insights.brains.com. Go to brains, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com to check out everything they have going on. It's all consolidated in that one web 
website. You go to brains.com, you'll see slush pool, firmware, the dashboard, the good content, brains.com, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. Last but not least, this rip was brought to you by our good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. Hoddle Hoddle is here to bring you a no, no KYC, no AML lending uh, platform that, it, that leverages Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties. You put Bitcoin up as collateral in a two or three multi-sig escrow account. You hold one key, your counterparty in the loan holds one key, and then Hoddle Hoddle is the third key, the arbiter in the situation. Um, the beauty of this, you don't have control of the Bitcoin throughout the duration of the loan. However, since you hold a key in the two or three multi-sig wallet, you have visibility into the wallet, which gives you the the ability to have confidence that your Bitcoin is not being rehypothecated after you put it up as collateral to get stablecoin liquidity. You put your Bitcoin up in the two or three multi-sig, you get stablecoins in return as long as you're paying back that loan plus the interest attached to it. You are going to get your sats back at the end of the day. The other side of that marketplace is the people giving out the stablecoins. If you have stablecoins and you want to enter a peer-to-peer um, uh, anonymous lending market, you can do that at HODL HODL. Uh, lend.hodlhodl.com is the lending platform. Uh, HODL HODL also has a peer-to-peer exchange. You just go to hodlhodl.com for that. Um, they're building incredible tools and products at HODL HODL. Bang up team. Really staying true to Bitcoin's ethos of peer-to-peer um, commerce and leveraging Bitcoin's native properties to to bring a future financial product. Well, it exists today. It's not a future financial product. It's here today, but they're creating a vision of of what a future financial company may look like. Lend.hodlhodl.com for the lending platform. Enjoy this riff. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. Probably should be. Oh, we're live. Don't cater to their framing. Is that is that what we're getting at? Yes, it's it's frustrating. Yeah, reject their premises is the point. They're wrong. Exactly. We're talking particularly. I'm sitting down with Dr. Safadina Moose, author of a few books on this bookshelf here, a couple books, two particularly. Yeah, we're we're talking about this whole meme in the Bitcoin space right now, particularly in North America, the Bitcoin mining industry feels the need to bring a bunch of information to a bunch of zealot hysterics about Bitcoin mining's energy mix. And they're pushing the narrative that Bitcoin mining is going to incentivize a transition to renewables, which I don't think is true. I don't think a transition to renewables is is smart, number one. And then number two, I've seen it personally, Bitcoin mining is going to incentivize more oil production because it's going to help oil and gas producers with their operations. I agree. I think it's, um, I think it's, I think the idea of a renewable transition is just a very, very dangerous idea. It's one of those things that everybody likes to, um, it's like motherhood and apple pie. You know, everybody wants to say that they like those things, that they're good and everybody 
uh, can't think of a bad thing about them. Although, let's face it, apple pie is terrible for your um, <laughs> your blood sugar. But uh, uh, renewable energy is uh, equally terrible, perhaps, for your chances at living in a modern civilized society, basically. The notion that these renewable energy sources can provide an alternative to fossil fuels is extremely dangerous. It's not just misguided. It's not just ridiculous. It's also very dangerous because uh, we, we going back to relying on sunlight and wind that isn't some futuristic <laughs> utopia Star Trek world where, you know, you press a button and everything materializes without there needing to be any hard work going into it. It means just going back to pre-industrialization. That's what it means. It's deindustrialization. So we can have 14th century technology on wind and uh, solar. We can't have computers. We can't have uh, all of these modern things that we like to take for granted, like surviving winter, you know, reliably being able to survive winter. That can't be done on wind and solar alone. And um, I think, you know, on a, on a, Putting Bitcoin aside, just the, the simple idea that you um, engage in this framing of the idea that the renewable transition is a good thing, I think that's very dangerous. Um, people need to wake up to it. We're seeing the effects of that in um, all of these grids that are failing all over the world, all of the countries where the price of electricity is rising over the last 10, 20 years. That's because they're introducing all of these primitive industries, all these primitive technologies into their grids. So uh, the more we continue to fashion the talk of this insane idea of a renewable transition, moving away from fossil fuels to renewables, the more, um, obviously it's not something that can be achieved technically. We can't have the 21st century technology based on seventh uh, century energy sources the only thing that we'll do is we're just going to make energy more and more expensive. And it's just going to get more expensive for people all over the world. So I think that's extremely dangerous to talk about that. But I also think it's unrealistic. As you say, it's not going to happen. That um, Bitcoin is magically going to break the laws of thermodynamics and suddenly make, uh, uh, make it possible to build the modern civilization on solar and wind. It's just not going to happen. No, and it's... It's not going to happen. And again, is so going back. Like, let's get to the crux of why it's a bad idea. I mean, you're, you you've been phrasing it as like 14th century technology. It's a regression. It all comes down to energy density. Like yes. wind and solar are not as energy dense as as oil and gas or nuclear. And that's I mean, we can get the nuclear in a bit here, but like that. I mean, that's the red herring. Like, if they really want it like clean, renewable, yeah. like they would go for nuclear, which is the most energy dense on on the market but this weird fascination with wind and solar specifically as you mentioned is a regression why is it a regression because it's less energy dense humans have only progressed as a society as we've discovered more energy dense sources exactly. of energy yeah and the way that i like to explain this in my next book principles of economics which is a textbook on economics i have a whole chapter on the economics of energy i think the way to think of it is that um, you know for something to be an economic good it has to be uh, valued. And in order for it to have value, it needs to be scarce. So there needs to be some element of scarcity about a good in order for people to have to value it as opposed to other things. You need to make a choice between it and other things. So that's why 
Um, water is not an economic good if you're on a giant river, right on the coast of, uh, right on the bank of a giant river. Um, air is not an economic good because it's uh, abundant uh, um, uh, everywhere. So energy, I think, cannot really be understood as an economic good in itself. There's infinite amounts of energy everywhere around us. So the sun every day hits the earth with more energy than um, humanity consumes in an entire year, I think. Or maybe, I forget the exact numbers, but there's an enormous amount of energy coming to earth from the sun. There's an enormous amount of energy from wind blowing everywhere all over the earth. Um, there's an enormous amount of energy in all of the fuels that are stored underground, the fossil fuels, which are constantly growing. You know, the amount of fossil fuels is as big as we look for. Where the more we look, the more we find. There's an enormously infinite amount of them existing under Earth, and the only limit is just how much we dig for it. Similarly, nuclear energy, I mean, infinitely larger even than fossil fuels, the amount of energy that exists out there because it's so extremely dense. So it's not really accurate that energy itself is the good. What is an economic good is power. Is, is the ability to is the delivering of energy at a specific rate over a specific period of time that's what is what is a scarce good you know being able to have enough energy to perform this job in this place at that time that's what's scarce that's what people pay for so the sunlight contains jewels um, the wind blowing contains jewels energy is all around us that's not valuable for us we can't pay for it we can't monetize it in order for us to value it in order for it to become an economic good, it needs to meet our needs. And in order to do that, you need to direct quantities of energy at a specific period of time. So power is what is scarce. How much energy can you direct at, a, at, at the work or the problem that you face per second? That is the scarce good. And that is what's difficult to have. That's it's, what's expensive to produce. That's what's expensive to produce particularly reliably. And that's where you understand how the energy market works. That's why solar and wind are such an expensive catastrophe. And it's completely unworkable. And it's not something that can be fixed with um, small efficiency improvements. Not everything will uh, end up following Moore's law and um, just getting cheaper infinitely forever. Some things are just not going to get uh, cheaper. <laughs> we need to accept it. And solar and wind, the problem with it is that the wind and the sunlight are not condensed sources of energy. So you need large amount of infrastructure in order to harvest large amounts of energy and then direct it toward a particular, uh, direct it toward meeting a particular source of your, a particular problem that you want to uh, solve, you know, heating something or moving something. So moving that energy from the abundant and low density state of wind and solar into the um, on-demand, high power state that you require to operate all of your toys and essential devices and to warm your house and to keep your kids warm. All of those things require high bursts of energy per second, high power on demand. So to transform solar low density, low power, low power density sources into high power density uh, available on demand, that's the expensive thing. And that is the problem exactly that fossil fuels solve. That's what fossil fuels are. They solve this problem because they are nature's perfect, abundant 
cheap, wholesome batteries. And they're just available all over the planet. Uh, concentrating the solar energy that has been accumulated on Earth for millions and billions of years into tiny little chunks of condensed energy. I mean, it's just, it's exactly what you'd wish for. I mean, just imagine, like, uh, if you understand how the world actually works, your life is all about trying to dedicate and find energy to answer your problems. And Mother Earth has chunks of stored energy <laughs> hidden for us like easter eggs under its entire surface for us to go out there and survive the winter and move around it's amazing it's the most incredible gift um the earth has given us you know it's given it, it allows us to have all these nice things and yet people are <laughs> kicking the gift away and saying no we need to get off this gift and get back to um, seventh century medieval peasant well some seventh century is not medieval but get back to you know Medieval peasant technologies uh, rely on the sun rising today so that we can um, get to survive and stay warm. Yeah, it's insane. And there's this weird anti, I mean, anti-human is, it's, it's getting used a lot these days, but it's true. It's anti-human. Like there's this weird masochism in the mainstream that like we feel bad. Uh, many humans, I don't feel bad, but there's many people out there who feel bad that we have the incredible ability to, number one, recognize that these fossil fuels uh, are this dense energy provider, that, that are, they're natural batteries that can produce energy and then produce electricity for us. And for some reason, like we, we don't like that we've been able to harness this and build this modern society that we have today with all these lights, the streaming technologies, microphones. And it's like for some reason the, the masses have been conned and psyoped into believing that doing all this is bad yeah i have my theories about the reason and it's in the fiat standard but before we get into that let's talk a little bit about exactly why it is that energy is important for our lives a, a great way of explaining it is um our friend alex epstein who's been on your podcast before has been online <laughs> several times um alex uh says uh, alex is a great way of explaining it which is Think about the amount of energy you use in terms of the number of people that it would take to produce that work. So currently the average American has the equivalent of, I forget the exact number, but somewhere around 200 slaves effectively working for them all day. If you think about how much energy you consume in terms of getting in the car, um, moving the car around, um, the energy that needs to go to boil your water, make your water hot so that you can take a hot shower, the electricity that keeps your house lit, um, air conditioning, heating, um, all of the stuff that you use in your work, your computer, all of the devices that you use. Think about how much energy that contains and then divide that by how much energy um, a human being, the average human being spends every day. So each one of us will consume and produce work equal to around two to 3,000 calories a day. And yet the average person today gets hundreds times of that. The average person, I should say, in a rich country, in a rich industrialized country that has 24-hour electricity grids and um, heavy consumption of high-power sources of energy, the average person will have 200 humans effectively working for them all day to produce their goods. Now, of course, it's not exactly equivalent to 200 humans because if you replace it with 200 humans, the 200 humans can't get you as far as your car can take you and they're not gonna run as fast as your car can take you and um, they can't make your life as good as the machines and the energy that we consume does. 
but it's nonetheless a good metric to kind of get the problem uh, in perspective. So you've got two human, 200 humans as your daily slaves, basically, um, in all of those machines that you use every day. Now, that's why your life is so much better than what your ancestors' lives was, were like a few hundred years ago. Because up until a few hundred years ago, up until we discovered these amazing um, batteries of nature that are fossil fuels, up until we started to massively deploy coal, oil, and gas into making our lives better, the vast majority of humans that have ever lived all throughout human history had nothing but their own energy sources but their own energy to meet their daily needs. So you woke up every day and you had your own hands to meet everything that you need to do. You had your own two to 3,000 calories a day that had to keep you warm, to keep you fed, to go get the wood, to keep your house warm, to go get the food, to hunt, to grow the food, to harvest the food, um, to build your house, to secure your house, to build your clothes, make your clothes, wear them, um, make sure that they uh, are good and continuously maintain them, maintain the house, all of that stuff. You only had yourself working for it. And, you know, obviously you could hire others, but you had to obviously um, produce something in exchange for that. So you only had those two, 3,000 calories a day. And you had to economize your energy in a way that would allow you to survive. So obviously, when you think of it this way, you know, imagine I put you on an island and you only have yourself and your own time and energy to survive, you see how difficult it is. It's it's extremely difficult to be able to survive with only your own labor and not be able to use other energy sources. The only people that historically had access to other people's, to higher levels of energy, were kings and slave owners historically. So if you managed to be king or chief of a tribe, you had 100 slaves or 500 slaves. And those people ran around all day you know, they need to take care of themselves, but they spent a big chunk of their energy taking care of you. If you had a slave, that person would go to the forest, get firewood, so then you didn't have to worry about ever being cold. And uh, think of, you know, once one whole slave is probably needed just to make you warm, if you just outsource the getting firewood for them. And then another 20 slaves would be responsible for moving you around. And then another 50 slaves would be responsible for uh, growing your food and harvesting your food and so on and producing your food and cooking for you. So if you were a king, you had something like a couple of hundred slaves uh, working for you a few hundred years ago, and that gave you a decent life. That's what a very, very, very tiny minority of humanity had ever had. And today, because of the abundance of energy, basically the average normal American uh, has something equivalent to hundreds of slaves mating their needs. And not only that, but they also have it in a way that some of the richest kings of human history have never had, because as good as slaves can be to have, you know, obviously it's better to have um, more people working for you. They are nothing like what the machines can do. There's no slave that can uh, take you as fast as a modern car. And that's, the miracle of how these fuels have uh, improved our lives. And it is precisely because of their ability to direct large quantities of energy at the problems that we want to solve to do the work that we want to do precisely at the time that we want it, you know, on demand. The thing, the, the, the ability to just flick a switch and watch a dark room go um, lit immediately 
without ever worrying about whether that can happen or can't happen or is the wind blowing or is the sun shining. That really is um, what makes our modern life possible. And that's why these fuels are so essential. And that's why trying to move away from them is so dangerous. Yeah. And it's, and you can't move away from them without them. Number one, you shouldn't do it. And that, that's, the, yeah. that's, so that's one of the things that really grinds my gears about this whole debate is, so again, accepting their framing. Where it's like, what is renewable? What is sustainable? Even fossil fuels. I like. I'm starting to be like, should we even use that term? Because I feel like that's a psyop to make yeah, to make I it feel to make it feel like there's like dinosaurs that are scarce underground that like we can only use. Yeah, I think I I, I I've seen a lot of people say that um, the term fossil fuels is misleading, and I generally try and not use it as uh, often. I prefer the term hydrocarbons, which is the technical term. They are hydrocarbon compounds, and uh, I think there's pretty compelling evidence that uh, these don't have to come from fossils. Maybe they do come from fossils, some of them, but there's no reason why these chemicals can't exist in the crust of the earth. Um, there are uh, meteors on which gases and um, hydrocarbons have been found. And there are places on earth where, um, you know, I know, I've seen this in the south of Turkey, there are uh, flames that come out of the mountain that have been lit for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And it's just gas coming out and burning for thousands and thousands of years continuously. The idea that um, you had to have fossils there in order for this to happen, I think is uh, it's not necessary. It's an assumption that's been uh, uh, taken unquestioned, but I, I doubt how valid it is. Yeah, there's, I mean, if you want to look it up, it's like the abiogenic process of creating yep. these these hydrocarbons under, yep. under the Earth's surface. Um, uh, Valkal Smil, uh, Vaclav Smil, he he writes a lot about this and natural gas powering the 21st century and makes a pretty convincing argument that there's most likely an abiogenic process happening under the earth that, that makes this possible. Yeah, and I think really natural gas is the uh, unsung hero here. I think if, we, if, if the world wasn't taken over over the last 50 years by insane people who don't understand anything, just children that are demanding, um, children that are basically throwing tantrums and saying, uh, we don't want the things that make our lives possible anymore. We want you to make them differently. If the world wasn't taken over by that, and if we hadn't spent enormous amounts of money and capital on um, these insane, misguided attempts to build all of these white elephant projects, uh, I think the world would have moved a lot more toward natural gas over the last few decades. We'd have had a lot more uh, investment in natural gas, and natural gas is better than coal uh, for power generation because it's much cleaner and um, it's uh, more modern and probably safer as well. Put it through a pipeline. Right? It's much easier to transport that than over rails with coal. Exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. much uh, cheaper to transport. Uh, so we would have had a natural gas revolution if the world was uh, not uh, insane. And I think, and that's the point in the fiat standard, the argument that I want to present in the fiat standard is that uh, like everything, this can and should be blamed on fiat. <laughs> it is the fault of fiat. Everything is the fault of fiat. And this is no exception. And I, 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 I have a whole chapter on fuels in particular in the fiat standard. And it wasn't just uh, there because, you know, I wanted to rant about things related to fiat. I know to sell books. Um, 
it's there because it's a fundamental part of the problem of fiat. In my opinion, the way that fiat inflation has been hidden over the last 50 years is by trying to convince people and gaslight them into believing that the things that they are that are necessary for them are not good for you because of various stupid pseudoscientific ideas and that the way that you can save yourself and save the earth is for you to live like a 13th century peasant basically uh, that's that's really what we see when it comes to food and it's what we see when it comes to energy both of those things are extremely sensitive to inflation and we saw how big of a problem this was in the 1970s and I discussed this in the fiat standard. So in the 1970s, when uh, Nixon went off the gold standard, or should it say, they went off the gold standard in 1914, but in 1971, they uh, removed the peg uh, or to remove the gold exchange window. And so there was no limit on how much money the US government could uh, generate. And prices shot up, prices of food and oil in particular rose significantly in the 1970s. That was a huge issue. This was the most important issue of the 70s. Whenever anybody remembers the 70s, they think of inflation. It was a massive global catastrophe. And uh, how did they fight it in the US? Well, we have very extensive evidence of the way that they fought it in the 1970s. And that was, when it comes to food, they invented these insane dietary guidelines that tell people that you should eat industrial slop and um, mass-produced uh, crops that are very cheap because that's better for you and that you should not eat meat and animal fats that have been produced uh, for millions of years which all of your ancestors have eaten you know no matter where you are in the world your ancestors have relied on animal fats in order to survive everywhere in the world it's it's the universal thing that <laughs> unites us as humans we eat meat and all our cultures rely on animal fats and that somehow became dangerous in the 1970s when it became very expensive because of inflation and somehow cheap industrial sludge became the thing that is healthy and somehow all of the universities <laughs> of uh, the world began repeating this insane idea that oh no 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 the animal fats that all of your ancestors have eaten in order to bring you here were bad giving you heart disease they're giving you the heart disease that only started in the last 20 years uh, <laughs> once we started manufacturing our uh industrial sludge fats and the answer you'll never guess it but the solution to your heart disease problem is the same industrial sludge uh <laughs> engine lubricant that we're feeding you which started the whole heart uh epidemic heart disease epidemic all over the world and so the answer magically for energy and for food is you need to eat, you need to consume the cheap stuff. And it's the same thing with energy. With energy, we've gone from up until the 1970s, you had a 2% per capita increase in energy consumption per year since the beginning of the 19th century. So we had about almost 200 years of uh, uninterrupted growth in per capita energy consumption worldwide as modern technology spread. And then that slows down in the 1970s and it stopped increasing. And, um, as prices of energy went up, we had an abundance of all of these silly pseudosciences explaining why we need to stop consuming all of these essential energy sources. So initially, we were going to run out of oil, and that's why we need to stop. That's why prices are rising, and that's why we need to stop using oil, because we're going to run out, and we're addicted, and there's not enough to go around, and we're all going to die if we, be if we don't beat the addiction on oil. And that was the 1970s when the prices were rising. 
Then in the 1980s, prices crashed and the production continued to go up. And so they rebranded the scare story. You know, the conclusion is still the same. Obviously, this is stupid, motivating reasoning. So there's no evidence behind it. The conclusion is still the same. We're all going to die. And it's all because of you consuming uh, food and uh, fuel to meet your needs. And the answer is for you to live like a 13th century uh, peasant. And, um, but you know, the details of why <laughs> switched from there's not enough oil to go around to there's way too much oil. There's so much oil that we're going to actually boil the oceans by burning <laughs> all of this oil. So, you know, the details may differ. <laughs> we may go from too much to too little, but it doesn't matter because we're set on the conclusion and the conclusion is fixed. And the conclusion is that you need to live like a 13th century peasant. But like, you look at this, I mean, it's it's not like it's one big giant conspiracy to push those ideas. I genuinely believe what's driving this is just, this is where government fiat financing takes the scientific process. It's just... If you come up with a conclusion that tells the government what it wants to hear, you get more funding. And that's why I have a whole chapter on fiat science, because in order to understand how we ended up living in a world where all of our politicians want to make us live like 13th century peasants and tell us that it's good for us, it you have to get into the science. The science is what's driving this. And the scientific the process, science. the science, exactly, the, the science, there's this insane cult called the science. <laughs> And it's a, a government-supported religion that gets money from governments all over the world to promote crazy uh, apocalyptic ideas that we're all going to die and the only way to save Earth is for you to uh, obey. And um, it's if you look at the funding of science um, in nutrition, you know it's gone entirely down the insane pathway of you need to stop eating meat and you need to eat more of our industrial sludge. And here's, here's all this very complicated science about how to manage your intake of sludge in the most optimal way. Um, but, you know, making sure that you get enough of our sponsored sludge because we're counting on you to do that, champ. And then <laughs> the same thing, we see it with the science on uh, climate and energy. Like... I mean, it's it's absolutely insane when you think about it. At American universities today, there there are thousands of economists with PhDs playing professors, um, and none of these people basically will actually stand up to stand up and say, "I actually think hydrocarbon fuels are good and necessary for modern civilization." I mean, it's just completely uncontroversial, completely undebatable statement it's you have to be completely delusional to um think that this is a bad thing and yet not a thing not a single professor will say this the only person that we know who says this stuff is outside of academia alex epstein mm -hmm. and you know a few others also from outside of academia all of them but there aren't any professors talking about that but all of these professors will give you an impassioned virtue signaling diatribe about how important it is that we move to wind and solar i mean the disconnect between reality, between just an entire academic establishment that lives in a world in which we need to get rid of what is making our world possible. And the only question is how and when and uh, how quickly do we do it? 
versus a real world in which everybody continues to rely every single day on these energies that they just are casually telling us, yep, we're going to replace that. They think of it like it's, you know, changing the color of your iPhone uh, uh, skin. You know, it's just, we could, nope, we're going to ban black and white iPhones and we're going to make it all green iPhones from now on. It's like if we just pass a law, we get Apple to do this, then everybody has to use a green iPhone and then <laughs> the earth is saved. They really think this is what needs to be done when it comes to energy. This is the depth of the sophistication that is discussing um, issues of energy in universities because for the last 50 years, it's been corrupted by fiat financing to produce nothing but fiat apologia, fiat propaganda, basically. Um, there's no inflation and uh, you need to stop consuming the things that give us inflation because that's not nice of you. Oh, and it's gotten to the point where it's, I, I, being in the mining industry particularly close with oil and gas companies, it's gotten to the point, especially like with the super majors, where the fiat world has convinced them that they're bad and they're like yes. actively trying to transition. It's like, no, be proud of what you're doing. What you're doing is an incredible thing for humanity. Yes. And yet you are succumbing, but, but the driver of that is the people who have the fiat money at the top. Exactly. Control the spigots. They're like, if exactly. You, if you want this money, you got to posture this way. Yeah, I mean, folks, like if, if, if this was really an evil conspiracy, like the oil companies would be <laughs> at the forefront, but they're, they're not, you know, they're, they're out there being apologetic about what they do. They're out there making life possible for the world, you know, giving us modern technology, giving us homes that function. They're giving us warm winters. They're giving us cars that move and airplanes that travel. They're making every single thing that you like possible. And they're out there basically apologizing for it and promising you that they're going to be changing. It's, and, and you're absolutely correct. I think this is, this is really the way to understand it. Like um, if this was just a corrupt process of corrupt companies, then you'd expect the oil company would be, the oil companies and their executives would be at the forefront of lobbying for this stuff to get what benefits them. But it's because this is all fiat, once the fiat scientific process has been, uh, set in motion in the direction of we need conclusions that tell us that this thing is bad and that thing is good. So, you know, meat is bad and industrial engine oil uh, refuse is good for you. Then that's it. There's 50 years of research and academics and research centers and um, policies that are going to be based around this. Similarly with energy, once you go off on that path, once the academics are going on about how um, fossil fuels are bad and they're boiling the ocean, then you're set on the path of all everything. You know, everything is downstream from that. The media, the press, public opinion, universities, policies, um, democratically elected re leaders, and everything is going to go towards this direction. And here's the kill shot. I think this is really how they get to all of these industries and make them repeat all this insane nonsense the financing, the fiat financing. You can't just go be an oil company today and raise money. You need to go to Wall Street and you need to adhere to environmental sustainability regulations and standards, and you need to um, issue a sustainability statement. This is all basically top-down enforced from larger corporations linked to an environmentalist agenda, which is coming from central banks, which have become extremely concerned about issues of the environment and diet. Um, you know, my, my um, I, I'm eternally grateful for the good people at the St. Louis Fed uh, Twitter account who did the best absolute possible uh, advertisement for my 
book, The Fiat Standard, uh, when it came out a week before Thanksgiving. And they tweeted about how you can save money and get more proteins from your Thanksgiving turkey if you made your turkey out of uh, soy. <laughs> So, you know, they're all, they're, they're so concerned about, you know, the, your food and your energy consumption. They've become Betty Crocker. They've become climatologists. And they, th this doesn't just affect their tweets. This affects their regulations that they impose for financing. And this affects everything in capital markets. So it's not very easy for oil companies to go and just get money and tell the world, yeah, well, you know what? Everybody needs our oil in order to survive. And until you people figure out how to survive without our stuff, we're not going to uh, <laughs> count out your stupid bullshit and pretend that the earth is boiling the oceans. If you say that, doesn't matter how much of a rich fat cat oil executive you are and how many uh, cigars you smoke in your board room with your other evil uh, fat cat oil executives, you're likely not going to make it at the big companies. You need to count out to big capital. Until, that is... <laughs> we get a Bitcoin standard. Until we get a Bitcoin standard. This is why Bitcoin fixes this. Again, everything is everything bad is caused by fiat and fixed by Bitcoin. Well, that's what I, th I want to create a Bitcoin standard oil and gas company where you drill wells, you sell the oil to market for cash, and then you use the associated natural gas to produce power to mine Bitcoin on site. And you can sell that oil to market, subsidize the mining operation, stack sats on your balance sheet. And if Bitcoin does what it does in the next 10 years, you won't have to go to these financiers and say, hey, I need your money to do this. You'd be like, nope, I love oil. I love yeah. Bitcoin. We're making it happen. And there's nothing you can do about it. I own this property. I own this business. I'm producing these revenues. I don't even need outside investment. There is one thing they can do though. Cry harder. <laughs> <laughs> it's happening. Well, and that's... So like I, I have that in mind, working towards that. Yeah, it's happening. Like the mining companies I'm involved in—that's what we're working. Towards. But let's let, let let let's dwell a little bit on why that really is what Bitcoin fixes. It's the thing about the way that fiat works is basically you can't really ever get truly rich and financially secure on fiat because it's a melting ice cube. So you can't just you know. Go start a billion dollar company, sell your stake for a billion dollars and sit on those billion dollars and just be professionally full-time rich for life. You can't do that because the million dollars, if you keep them in cash, they're going to be devalued all the time. And, you know, within a few years, you'll find yourself with half the real wealth that you had. So, you know, you worked for a billion dollars and 10 years down the line, you've got something like 400 million. It kind of stings. So you can't just sit on the money and be rich and go and live your life and be a philosopher or whatever. You have to keep playing the financial uh, market casino. You have to beat inflation. And that's just a full-time job. And so you have to keep going back to the well, basically, to drink again from the fiat casino. You have to keep playing the game, trying to beat inflation, trying to beat inflation over and over and over again. And uh, that's basically how political control is achieved through fiat. This is why fiat leads to political centralization because you can't just get rich and independent and wealthy and then go sponsor the things that make you more money. Your money is constantly draining. So you need to constantly go back and get uh, and get invested more. And of course, the smart thing to do, as I discussed in the fiat standard, you know, the, the, the smart way to work with fiat is 
to accumulate liabilities. You know, with Bitcoin, you want to stack as many Bitcoins as you can. With fiat, you want to stack as many fiat liabilities as you can. You want to buy stuff today, own capital goods, own stuff that you can use today and um, pay for it with tomorrow dollars uh, because tomorrow dollars are going to be cheaper. So the smart thing to do is to get financing. So everybody runs on financing. So oil companies, everyone is constantly looking for financing because it makes no sense to save your own money and then go and invest it. It makes more sense to borrow other people's money because this money is devaluing. So everybody needs financing all the time. So as rich as you get, just, you know, the richer you get, the more financing you can get and the more you get into this game. So instead of just stacking money and getting rich, you're constantly getting richer by getting into more fiat debt. And so you become more and more politically dependent on the system, on the financial system, the fiat system, on playing along with all of their stupid fiat games, on going along with all the stupid fiat narratives, on making things um, in your company operate according to whatever the latest current thing is. And that just makes you, uh, makes everybody dependent. That's, and, and it makes society politically centralized and it puts more and more power in the hands of the people that control the printing press as if they need more fucking power. But Bitcoin fixes this because with Bitcoin, I know Bitcoin fixes this even besides the mining issue. Bitcoin fixes this because now with Bitcoin, at least you can get rich and stay rich. Put your money in Bitcoin and then you can uh, be reasonably certain that five years down the line, it's not going to have lost half its value. It's more likely going to have doubled at least, if not much more. So with that, you can become independently wealthy. You don't have to keep going back to the fiat financing faucet, asking for more and uh, presenting more and more ESG credentials so that you can get more money. With Bitcoin, you can just stack the money, watch it appreciate, and then you become independent. And that weakens the ability of centralized authority to continue to manipulate and dominate and gaslight society into believing insane hysterical nonsense. Yeah. And this is, I mean, I know we don't have to focus on mining specifically and you can have localities just straight up buy Bitcoin, put it on the reserves. But this is something I've become very passionate about in the last year, few years is getting like cities, counties, even states into with that, that have energy, either excess energy on their utilities that they own or uh, fuel sources on their land, like natural gas in Wyoming. Like I would love for Wyoming to start a Bitcoin mining permanent fund where they can, they can issue a municipal bond to their constituents. It's sort of like the volcano bond in El Salvador, but just on a smaller scale in Wyoming, you issue a muni bond to invest in mining infrastructure, or you give your abandoned orphan wells to a, a partner in the private sector on the mining side, say, hey, come take this well for free. You can mine on this gas. Uh, just give us 3% of the, the mining revenues that we're going to roll into this permanent fund that you can then build up that fund. And what does the federal government hold over these states? This funding. And so like, if you have this permanent fund that amasses a, a significant amount of, of wealth in it, and the, the individual states can then begin to turn around and say, hey, no, thank you, federal government. I don't need this funding anymore. I, I don't need to go back to the the fiat well, the federal government. And that's, to me, that makes the most sense. If we're going to break away from this morass of these terrible politicians leading us down terrible roads and creating a shit ton of conflict and making our lives worse off at the end of the day, uh, having movements like this at the, the city state level um, is, is a good way 
to sort of break away. Absolutely. And I think it's, um, it, it seems increasingly like we're headed to a system of financial apartheid where um, there's people who are in the fiat system who get access to cheap credit and are constantly benefiting from inflation. And a majority of people are um, unable to get cheap credit. And so therefore they're being robbed by inflation. Um, and then there's a third class of people that have <laughs> found the cheat code to the system. And that cheat code is Bitcoin, where you stack sats and the sats, and the sats appreciate over time. And you become less and less dependent on the system because the way that it's going with the normies, um, you know, back in fiat land, the dark, ugly place that you and I and your listeners have thankfully left. But the way that it's going is it's been 50 years of inflation and 50 years of dumb pseudoscience trying to convince the peasants that actually <laughs> the inflation is not a problem. And the reason you're experiencing poverty and can't feed yourself or stay warm in the winter is because of the climate crisis. And the way to solve that is that <laughs> you need to go more hungry and more cold in the winter. And we need to rely on uh, more expensive forms of energy that are far less uh, useful for meeting your needs. And, in or and also, you know, we have all this new science now, thanks to all these amazing scientists that we have. And, uh, it's settled, the science is in, and the science says, you need to stay home, you need to eat the bugs, you need to live in a tiny little pod, you need to have a tiny little golf cart for a car, and you need to have a range, maximum range of driving of 20 minutes away from your home, and you need to use the CBDC currency, in your the CBDC in your phone, and um, because of climate considerations, you can't ever use, your money isn't good anywhere more than 20 minutes away from your house because you shouldn't be going anywhere more than 20 minutes away from your house because that was gonna consume too much energy. Like this is really the key thing. As long as you get people to think that energy consumption is a bad thing, then you can always alleviate the pressure from inflation by making people consume less and forcing them to consume less one way or the other. And I think lockdowns are a, a, a great way to do that. And I think, you know, the work from home culture is going to help with that. Um, stay home, work from home, get your bug soy burgers delivered to your home. And, um, you know, if we just have, we can run society on a lower energy footprint if everybody lives like a bug man in a little pod and eats uh, soy. I mean, we can massively reduce the carbon footprint of the United States, of course, by giving it the living standards of uh, uh, a very poor African country. So if you, once you've gotten down that um, path of just believing this um, original lie of the idea that consuming energy is bad, then it's an infinite world of possibilities for the fiaters <laughs> to turn you into a bugman and make you live like shit and convince you that it's your fault that, every, that the weather is bad. <laughs> that it's the only way to fix it is for them to get, a print, to get more money printed and for you to eat more bugs. It's like the longer you keep eating bugs and living like a bug man and refusing uh, to um, doubt in this uh, narrative, the more they can continue to print, <laughs> the more the scam goes on. The more control they get. And this is, yeah. this is what gets me very passionate about the mining industry right now. The mining industry in North America is catering to this framing. It's like, hey, no, we're only using 0.1% of the 
global energy consumption of the world. It's like, don't even, like, don't even seed the frame. Yeah, it's there. not going to be 0.1% for long. It's, it's number go up technology. Yeah. Number go up. Like energy use isn't bad. Exactly. That's like, you should be going back to these people who are, are trying to paint the Bitcoin mining industry as some world destroying industry and say, no, you are anti-human. You do not understand how we uh, live in this modern society that we enjoy today. And I'm not going to cater to you. You are an hysteric zealot that has psyoped the world into believing that humans are bad and energy use is bad. And I think we need to start calling them out. Like, so yes. one thing they use is models. The models. Yeah. The models are very no. It's fiat. it's it's a cult, and I think it's it's it's. It's it's useful to talk to people who believe in this stuff like you talk to survivors of cults. And that, look, if you went to a school and you were a nine-year-old kid and they told you that the earth is boiling and dying and suffocating because of a disease called humans and that you're doing that because you're driving your car around. Your, your dad is killing the planet because he drove you to school today and because you have electric devices at home and because you uh, emit carbon dioxide. If you went to a school where they taught you that, congratulations, you're a member of a cult. <laughs> this is what cults do. Like if, if you teach a child they were born into sin and they are sin and that they need to uh, uh, pay money to the, the, the people in charge in order for them to uh, absolve themselves from this, that's a cult. Like you're, you're just manipulating people and you're convincing them that the, the weather that's around them, you know, it's rained too much or too little or it's too hot or it's too cold. That's your fault for doing the normal things that everybody's doing. And the answer is for you to give us more money and power. But the, that's that's insane. And I think the, the, the amazing thing about Bitcoin, the reason I love Bitcoin is that it's forcing this conversation out into many people's minds without Bitcoin, this wouldn't really be there. Like 10 years ago, it was very difficult to make this case. You know, um, Alex Epstein has had an, a much difficult, a much more difficult time, I think, uh, preaching this point to no coiners than he does with Bitcoiners because Bitcoin really brings this question to the fore and prevents you from um, employing the usual mental tricks that um, people's hypocrisy employs in order to justify their um, abject hypocrisy when it comes to um, the, their views and their actions on climate. So everybody who thinks that we're in a climate crisis still thinks it's okay to drive a car and still thinks it's okay to run central heating in their house and thinks it's okay to log on to their laptop and use it to access servers of Twitter halfway around the world and shitpost on the internet, even though that's um, consuming energy and posting carbon and uh, emitting carbon dioxide. So you have those people who live in this world where um, everything we do is bad and yet we're going to do it anyway and um, because we need to do it and they don't see the contradiction and they can't come to terms with it and they they want to believe in this insane idea that we can we can have the apple without the apple tree you know we can just have apples without having to have any apple trees so we can have nice things we can have computers we can have children that um, uh, don't die when they're born because we have incubators that run 24-7 reliably because we have reliable 24-7 electricity. We can have computers and servers. We can have MacBook Pros and we can have Zoom calls and we can have all of these amazingly sophisticated technology. But we don't want to have what makes it possible. You know, we don't want to have the apple tree, which is all of these hydrocarbons. 
And the only way to come to terms with that is you need to um, reject the cult, snap out of the stupid cult's teachings that you are bad, that you seeking to keep your children warm through the winter is you being an evil psychopath and accept the idea that yes, energy consumption is a good thing. And the more energy I consume, the better my life becomes. The more energy I consume, the more likely I am to keep my kids alive through winter. The more I can take them around wherever I need to take them, the more I am able to um, provide them with food and nutrition and all the things that they need uh, to flourish and prosper in life. And that's just what people need to accept. And Bitcoin puts that at the forefront because <laughs> it, uh, hits you know once you once you've caught the NGU bug once you've understood the number go up technology, Bitcoin becomes about self interest and people get bitten by the Bitcoin mind virus and then it becomes very difficult for them to reconcile the fact that well Bitcoin is good and Bitcoin consumes a lot of electricity with the worldview that um, what is good is to not consume electricity and to go back to primitiveness. Bitcoin puts this front and center and I think it's helped a lot of people who were generally, like I, th I think a lot of Bitcoiners now are very skeptical of the old energy narrative um, that they grew up with, um, the climate narrative. Bitcoin has helped force that because it's just put it out there in front of them. All right, you don't like electricity, quit your Bitcoin and go and use your currency, your, your national currencies, which is, you know, very environmentally friendly. Like there's no proof of work in the Venezuelan Bolivar. There's no proof of work in the Lebanese Lira. There's no proof of work in the US dollar. They don't consume anywhere near as much energy as Bitcoin does. So why don't you just use them? If you think that energy consumption is bad, there is no comparison between the Venezuelan Bolivar and Bitcoin. So if energy consumption is bad, then go with the Venezuelan Bolivar, you know, the environmentally friendly and sustainable option, <laughs> the green renewable uh, currency. Well, then there's, <laughs> well, and, and there's layers to this conversation too. Like what, what we should really be focused on is misallocation of resources, energy resources being one of the most important. And what does the fiat standard do? It allows us to misallocate these energy. Like imagine how energy resources will be allocated under a Bitcoin standard. Exactly. There are real environmental problems in the world. The idea that CO2 is boiling the ocean is not one of them. Um, the idea that CO2 is going to change the Earth's temperature and make the Earth unlivable is not one of them. None of the CO2 scare stories are environmental, are real environmental problems, but there are real environmental problems in the world. And I think they are massively amplified by the fact that we are having our time preference raised by inflation. We're constantly discounting the future more and more because we don't have a reliable way of providing for the future. And uh, when our money is losing value, that means we don't have a reliable way of storing value into the future. That means there's a discount on everything else for the future. The value for everything in the future gets discounted because we prioritize consumption now. And so this is why I think the soil gets depleted because people don't value the soil much because they discount the future heavily. If you discount the future heavily, you don't care about the quality of your soil 10 years from now. You care about the money that you make today. The higher your time preference, the more you discount the quality of your soil 10 years from now. And as time preference has risen and as the value of money has declined, the quality of the soil has declined. And nobody, well, not nobody, but I mean, the majority of agriculture now degrades the soil completely and then just adds fertilizer to it, which is very unhealthy. It's a very high time preference thing to do. You've degraded the uh, earth 
for short-term profit, you know, let's maximize the crop today, maximize the crop today. And now we're at the point where, you know, today is the um, future that the past generations had discounted. And now we're paying the price for it. Yeah. And it's, it's a heavy price. So that's what I worry. I've been getting really deep into the beef initiative, Texas Slim, Cole Bolton from KNC Cattle here uh, in Austin. And on the farming side of things, particularly the ranching side of things, it seems to be hitting a dire situation, particularly with topsoil depletion and the, the most of all, the, like, the profitability of actually running a quality ranch or farm is, is hitting a point where you have a lot of ranchers just throwing their hands up and saying, I'm, I, I can't do this, I can't survive on this, so I'm just going to tap out. And this is because they're losing out to heavily subsidize like corn cropping and other areas of the food industry that the fiat standard is enabling. And so I'm under the impression personally that we're hitting, we're, we're, we may be reaching a point of no return if we don't quickly or you know, quickly transition to a sound money standard that, that we're going to be doomed for industrial sludge like here on out. Like, <laughs> do you, how, like, how important do you think it is that we transition transition to a Bitcoin standard in a somewhat timely manner? I mean, obviously, it's the faster, the better. The, the human toll is enormous. Um, you know, people are getting sick um, because of this. And I, I mean, I, I think the link is, is really strong. And I also discussed this in the Fiat Food chapter. It's no coincidence that the soil is getting degraded, the quality of food is getting degraded, and the health of the people is degrading. These aren't just coincidences. And um, these cannot be unrelated to people's time preference. If you understand what time preference is, you cannot just say all of this stuff is happening. Uh, people are making bad um, high time preference decisions with their food choices. People are making bad high time preference decisions with the uh, way that they farm their soil. And that's all unrelated to the fact that their money is constantly being devalued. I don't think it's a tenable, tenable art argument that can be made uh, against that. And I make the case in the fiat standard. But I think, and I do agree, of course, the damage is enormous, but I don't think there is a point of no return because I think no matter how much damage you do to the soil, any soil, no matter how damaged, no matter how um, destroyed and um, uh, dead, can be reju rejuvenated and regenerated using uh, regenerative grazing. So you just need to let loose cows and they make the soil green again. That's the beauty of regenerative grazing. So, um, you know, all over the U.S. there are people doing regenerative grazing that are taking land that was used for soy and corn and other fiat crops and the mass produ production of these crops completely de destroyed and devastated the land. And yet, uh, within a few years, it's back to being uh, great uh, grazing land um, with very dense grass cover and very thick um, layer of uh, nutrients under the soil. So it's just going to continue to improve over time, I think, um, if you start doing it. And I, um, this is the optimistic thing about it. In a sense, you can upgrade. Like th th These things are not like a, an actual prison that's put out there. These are just the economic realities of using this currency. And if you snap out of this currency, if you opt out of this currency, you've uh, basically uninstalled the fiat standard from your life and you've upgraded to a Bitcoin standard. And, uh, you know, you can uh, you can escape this. You can still find, find a farmer 
buy beef from them. And the more you buy from them, the more you're giving them money to invest in more cows to go around on more land, regenerate more land and make it uh, healthier. So um, we can get a little bit too black-pilled and too yes. doom, doomy about it. But, um, you know, this this ends the moment you say it ends. You just, uh, you, as far as you're concerned, and this is really the only useful thing to think about is just think about yourself individually in your own life. You can uh, snap out of this the moment you choose to. You know, you can get out of this the moment that you decide that you don't want to be in it because you get out of fiat, you get into Bitcoin world, you start accumulating hard money, you start thinking about the future more and you start eating like a human being. And that just is better for you and for people around you. So the more people that join, um, the better off the world will be. We're gonna, and I think it's um, it's going to become more and more likely that, uh, I mean, I think now we're entered the point over the last two years where people are getting into Bitcoin, even if they're not interested in any of the money stuff, uh, people are getting into Bitcoin if they're interested in eating meat, not just because of the memes on Twitter and because of Bitstein, but <laughs> because... Um, <laughs> Because it's becoming, you know, for, if you follow what's going on, if you looked at how restrictions were imposed all over the world, we're not that far away from a world in which um, Bill Gates uh, declares that you're not allowed to eat more than 10 grams of beef a day. I mean, that's really not so far-fetched when you remember that just a couple of years ago, he went up and said, hey, uh, there's no going back to church or sports events or normal life until everybody has bought my products. And he just said it on TV and everybody just went along and um, all the world's public health um, Hitlers were just went and repeated that. And all of the world's presidents and kings and prime ministers just went along and said, yeah, uh, that's what our public health expert Hitlers are saying. And everybody just went along with it. And we did get locked up at home. Uh, many of us for a very long time, some people, are still locked up in some parts of the world. And um, how, how, how far is it from uh, the day that Bill Gates announces a climate emergency and you can't eat more beef and um, you can't drive more than 10 minutes away from your house? Yeah, it's not that far. Yeah. If you let the, that's a, so that's the other thing, especially bringing it back to the context like Bitcoin mining industry, like cow telling. And they're like, no, you have like, this is what we have to do. Like people are, this is, we have to lock down two weeks. We, we have to get our booster. A lot of people think, but it's like, yeah, you can stand up and say, no, hey, like, like you just mentioned, you can stand up and say, no, I'm going to opt out of this, go to a Bitcoin standard. Um, I, I, I know that I keep bringing it back to mining, but it's just top of mind. Like that, I'm trying to get the message out to the mining industry. We can stand up and say, no, we're not going along with this. Like we're not, we're not going to do this. It is a personal decision a choice that you make in a moment say no and, and, you can yeah, and i think I, if i if i were to make the uh, practical argument uh, for or the practical argument against kowtowing to this and uh for um <laughs> the, the practical uh marketing argument for cry harder as a response <laughs> to this uh kind of attack is look uh, you're not going to be able to win a, uh, you're not going to be able to reason with somebody uh, engaged in motivated reasoning. The problem here is not carbon dioxide. 
<laughs> and I think everybody in the Bitcoin mining industry is pretty much on board with this. Like if you notice the debates among Bitcoiners, you'll never see anybody serious say that, oh, well, you know, okay, no, this is a real climate crisis and we need to do this. It's all about, well, no, but people think it's a climate crisis. And so we need to frame our uh, messaging in a certain way. I don't see many Bitcoiners um, <laughs> trying to legitimately make the case that CO2 is destroying the earth. There are obviously a few weirdos um, and congratulations <laughs> on uh, on your cult membership, uh, wishing you all the best. But really like nobody's serious about the fact that CO2 is destroying the earth. And within the Bitcoin community, like this stuff flies in the normie land um, among CNN viewers and uh, New York Times readers. Yeah, you talk about this stuff and you can say it, but nobody in the Bitcoin space is that silly. Like that's just, no, no, people aren't actually worried about a climate crisis. A bunch of people might pretend to be, but look at the way that they live, look at their actions. They're not worried about a climate crisis. There is no um, climate crisis. But I think the case for uh, just being upfront about that and saying, look, CO2 is not going to burn the earth. There is no climate crisis. There is no... Um, catastrophe waiting for us and energy consumption is what makes life worth living and the real crisis would be if we stopped um, consuming energy and if we reduced our energy consumption because of this hysteria about what co2 is doing to the earth um, i think this is a more coherent message because if you accept the premise if you accept the premise of the hysterics if you tell them all right well okay we agree indeed this is a crisis and the world's going to end and we need to move away, then you've just played into their frame and you can't argue with them. You can't argue your way out of this motivated reasoning because the whole thing is just a trap whose goal is to get you under their control. The whole point is to get you to start performing circus rituals so that then there's control over it. So once, you know, once you've accepted the premise and you start kowtowing to them, then the next step is it doesn't matter what you argue. You know, everything that you say is noise for them. Um, for them, there's a problem, which is <laughs> the gods of the wind are angry at us and they're going to make uh, Gaia uh, destroy us. Whatever, you know, whatever story, whatever cartoon story they want to believe. But there's a solution and the solution is give us money and power. So you can't tell them, all right, uh, I agree with you. The goddess of the wind is going to make Gaia destroy us for our sins. But <laughs> the solution is for me to not give you money and power. The solution is for me to keep my own money <laughs> for myself. That's not going to fly. It doesn't follow from the premises. The whole premises are constructed in a way to arrive at the conclusion. And you can't win this game. They're not reasonable. They're not being um, scientific about it. They're not looking for evidence and counter evidence. They're just, um, they're political and it's a political movement. It has political objectives and the political objectives are control. And so playing along is just helping them grab more control, helping them control how you behave, how you frame yourself, how you frame your narrative and trapping yourself into their claws. And that's, uh, that's I think it's, it, it's not gonna work. Um, because obviously there's, if you accept the premise, there's no, there's no way that you can argue with the premise in order to refute the conclusion. So you're playing into their hands and you're making your position, frankly, incoherent. And I think like if you accept the premise that CO2 really is destroying the earth, 
then I'm sorry, but all of the anti-Bitcoin hysterics are correct. Bitcoin is an insane, wasteful uh, criminal enterprise. Why would we want to spend so much energy on um, making a currency if it's going to really destroy the earth? That's an actually valid argument. If you obviously, only obviously, if you believe in the insanely nonsensical idea that CO2 is destroying the earth. Yeah, if CO2 is destroying the earth, every little bit of CO2 reduction helps. And the idea of moving the world's monetary system into a uh, fully electronic-based system is going to require an enormous increase in the amount of electricity that it consumes. And yeah, we can save the earth by sticking to inflationary low energy currencies. Uh, you can't really argue with that logic. I mean, it's <laughs> if, if, if it follows, then yeah, we, we should get rid of Bitcoin, but not just Bitcoin. We should get rid of washing machines. Who needs washing machines, you know? Uh, why should you get to wear clo clean clothes uh, with a machine? Why can't you just wash them with your hands? We need to get rid of all kinds of different things as well. So that's where the I, I think the effective messaging will come. The effective messaging is, yes, Bitcoin consumes energy because it's worth it, just like your washing machine consumes energy because it's worth it, because the alternative is hyperinflation and political control and high inflation and low inflation and all these different varieties of inflation and business cycles and... Um, genocidal maniacs having a printing press to, to subsidize all of their genocides. That's why Bitcoin is worth it. Like everything that we spend electricity on, it's worth it because it's a better way of doing things. It's not worth it because it's going to allow a bunch of renewable energy projects to go up. Nobody cares about those renewable energy projects. They're just boondoggles. They mean nothing. They're not fixing the earth. They're not going to make the weather better. They're not going to fix the climate. Whatever your cult told you about um, wind and solar is not true. It's just an extremely inefficient, extremely expensive boondoggle that a lot of people have gotten rich off of over the last 50 years. And it serves absolutely no useful function when introduced to the grid. It is completely superfluous to the grid because there are times during the year when the sunlight is zero and the wind is zero. There's no sun and there's no wind and you still need electricity. And sometimes that might happen at peak load demand. So you still need to have the whole uh, peak load demand provided from a reliable on-demand energy source like gas or coal or nuclear. And adding wind and solar is just going to be operated at times where wind is running and solar is running, where when the sun is shining and the wind is uh, blowing. So that just means you're adding, you might be reducing a little bit of gas consumption, but it's destroying the reliability of the grid by having to constantly shift between energy sources based on um, the energy that is happening. And it's completely superfluous because you could just run the whole thing on one reliable unit of uh, generation and one grid, which is what we've been doing for decades. And that's what's given us 24-hour electricity. So um, there's no good thing about... Um, renewable energy. It's just a very expensive and inefficient and dirty way of um, laundering hydrocarbons. It's really hydrocarbon laundering because you can't build solar panels without hydrocarbons and they consume an enormous amount of solar panel, solar energy and they consume it at very high power um, and then they deliver very small amounts of low power over a very long time and not very long time and they fall apart and then they can't really be recycled or the windmills that are filling up 
uh, landfills all over the world uh, because they can also can be recycled. So there's nothing nice and uh, we don't need to ingratiate ourselves to the scam of an industry. Um, I mean, I speak for myself. I don't feel that I can need to ingratiate myself. And I think accepting the framing is just sucking you into having to play their game. And once you've accepted the framing, once you've accepted this um, framing, then there's no way around um, you are the problem. You know, you are the carbon they want to reduce. Never forget. Yeah, and we're and we're already seeing it begin to materialize. The fact that they don't care about how much "quote unquote" renewable energy you use. You have activists and politicians around the world, particularly in Europe, um, where Bitcoin miners like, "Hey, we're using 100% wind, solar, and hydro," and the activists are like, "That electricity could be used for something else." Exactly. We don't want you there. Exactly. Once you've accepted the premise, this is this is the perfect illustration of what I wanted to get at. Thank you. Once you've accepted the premise that CO2 emissions are boiling the ocean, you have no defensible position anywhere. Even your own breathing is up for attack. Like, why are you breathing? Every time you breathe, you're releasing CO2. You criminal. How dare you? You know, that you have no indefensible position. And I think Nope, I'm going to put my foot down and I'm going to be crazy and I'm going to get laughed at by all the uh, weirdos uh, <laughs> who want to believe what their CNN uh, cult tells them. Nope, breathing, me breathing is not destroying the earth. <laughs> me driving my car is not boiling the oceans. Me owning Bitcoin and making a Bitcoin transaction is not going to destroy the weather. Just like all of those other things are not going to destroy the weather. And I'm not going to let anybody tell me what to do based on what they think my actions contribute to the weather. <laughs> that's, that's I think, the rational way that people need to start talking about it. And I think Bitcoin is just a natural place where this is going to emerge. And I think the, a lot of the green hysterics think that, yeah, we're just going to bring our green hysteria to Bitcoin and then we're going <laughs> to be done with Bitcoin and turn it to green. Um, but I think the opposite is going to happen. The, the exact opposite is going to happen. They're just going to keep coming into Bitcoin and because Bitcoin exposes this hypocrisy, as I was saying earlier, about the idea that um, you don't believe in this, um, do you actually believe that consuming energy is a good thing or a bad thing? Because Bitcoin could, Bitcoin exposes that, the more they do this on Bitcoin, the more it exposes their shtick on everything else. And I think, um, you know, Bitcoin continues to work. Bitcoin isn't going anywhere. And... Uh, this green hysteria is only going to become more and more and more ridiculous to more and more people over time. You know, Bitcoin is going to continue to operate. People are going to continue to benefit from using Bitcoin. People are going to continue to use it. And on the other hand, the weather is just going to continue to be the same weather that we've always had forever, which is constantly changing. It changes day to day, it changes year to year, it changes season to season, changes decade to decade. There's nothing constant on earth, but it's largely pretty much the same throughout your lifetime. So people are going to continue to see that there's no climate crisis. The weather is just doing the same thing that it's always done. And Bitcoin works. So I think it's going to it's going to expose the hypocrisy of the green idea rather than um, getting Bitcoiners to change. And I think um, this is a great example because in their perspective, you know, energy is a bad thing. And we're trying to consume as little energy as we can. And we want to make as much of that come from um uh, renewable crap. So therefore, telling them, well, Bitcoin runs on a lot of renewables is telling them, hey, we're going to eat all of your new renewables. It's not helping. You're still consuming energy and there's no escaping the fact that Bitcoin consumes energy. So 
Um, <laughs> own it, accept it. It's real. Yeah. Uh, you consume energy. You wouldn't be alive without energy. Yeah. Thank you for so eloquently stating that. I've been trying to articulate this for like what feels like a year now. And you just succinctly distilled it in, in a 10-minute rant there. Thank you, sir. I think it's, it's it really helps that in Bitcoin, people like us can talk to one another. Everywhere else, we're just the weirdos that get laughed at and uh, don't get research funding or um, lose their jobs. And then, <laughs> the, 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 you know, you just cancel people with fiat money. All fiat institutions, anybody who dares say anything about uh, CO2 not being the devil, just gets canceled. Yeah. But in Bitcoin, we could continue to have this conversation. And of course, we always get the, sh the screeching idiots um, that, you know, like to um, sling their tomatoes. There's, and there's the, probably a bunch know. of them under this tweet already. Of, yes. Of the live stream. <laughs> <laughs> get off Twitter. You are consuming too much carbon dioxide. Stop. Uh, be the change you want to see in the world and stop consuming or producing carbon dioxide. And then we'll take anything you say seriously. Until then, we're just going to continue here bouncing ideas off of each other and um, making a more eloquent and intelligent and precise case for why human life is more valuable than your city hysteria. Yeah. And, no, and I, I want to thank you too for like not being afraid. I mean, I, I think it's because you live in a Bitcoin standard and you've <laughs> written some of the most prolific words that uh, about the subject that many respect and like you specifically having the courage or just, you just don't, I don't know if it's courage or you just don't give a fuck, but just being able to say out, stand out there and say, no, I'm not going along with this climate hysteria. I think it's definitely emboldened people. It's definitely emboldened somebody like myself who probably in years past was like, yeah, maybe we should just like try to appease them. But like, I think I've been completely, I have been completely convinced like, no, there is no appeasing these people. We do, should not accept their frame. Humans are not bad. We're good. We're going to use more energy. We, we Bitcoin, then that's the beauty of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is going to bring the sound monetary system to existence that forces us to be efficient with energy allocation too. Like that's yes. the narrative we should be leaning into as a mining exactly. energy efficiency. That's what Bitcoin is going to do. Yeah, and cheap energy. I mean, I think this is this is the thing that we should be stressing on. Energy is a good thing, and Bitcoin is going to help us provide a lot more energy for the world because it's going. It, Bitcoin is an ongoing bounty. Every 10 minutes, there's, uh, what is it now, 40,000 times 900, it's about $35 million. Bitcoin every 10 minutes is giving out, no, sorry, every day, Bitcoin is giving out $35 million of bounty to people who have cheap electricity. So anybody who's got cheap electricity, if you have a source of cheap electricity anywhere in the world, you can make a lot of money from Bitcoin. Just develop that, find a way of turning it into reliable, cheap electricity that runs 24-7. And you can sell that to the Bitcoin network and make a lot of money. Like this is like a global bounty for everybody in the world to go and make more cheap, reliable electricity. And cheap, reliable electricity is what has given us the modern world. There is nothing bad about that. This is what the Bitcoin mining industry should be proud of. It's really what we're doing. We're giving the world cheap electricity. If you increase demand for anything, if you increase the quantity of um, people demanding to buy any good, that just results in more and more of it being made and more capital being invested in its production and therefore lower and lower prices for its production. So Bitcoin is doing that for energy and it's going to increase energy consumption. And I think I'll, I'll leave the people who think increased energy production is a bad thing or consumption is a bad thing to think of it this way. If you'd like everybody in the world who lives in poverty 
to live according to the living standards of your average, say, American or European middle-class person. We're not gonna, we don't want everybody, to, well, I do want everybody to be Bezos, but let's, uh, let, let's, Let's, you know, Bezos, Jeff Bezos, obviously the richer you are, the more energy you consume. You know, the people who have a private jet have the equivalent of tens of thousands of um, slave persons energy being used to operate this. So let's not go that far. But if you want to have just your average middle-class Americans level of energy consumption, and you want to give it to everybody in the world, that's going to necessarily mean that we're going to at least 4x, uh, 5x, the global amount of energy consumption that takes place in the world. And uh, that cannot be done from uh, wind and solar, obviously. It cannot be done from hydroelectric because most people don't live near hydroelectric dams. And it can't all come from nuclear. Um, it will have to come from uh, um, mainly from uh, hydrocarbons, which is where more than 80% of the world's energy comes from until today. And it is 80%, but in reality, it's more like 90% because as I was saying earlier, all the other stuff is really hydrocarbon uh, laundering. Like, yeah, we do get a small percent from solar, but really we can't build, until we can build solar panels out of solar energy, then solar is just an expensive, elaborate way of wasting hydrocarbons. We, we use the hydrocarbons to build the solar and then that thing um, produces the energy. So ultimately we still utterly reliant on the hydrocarbons. So. If, we, if you'd like the world's poor to not be poor anymore, if you'd like people who have very low life expectancy, people who have very high infant mortality, people who live in places where uh, premature babies can't survive just because the hospital doesn't have 24-hour electricity so they don't bother get any incubators because the incubators won't work and the babies would die. If you want those people to move to the living standard where Incubators work 24-7, there's reliable electricity, everybody's got a fridge in their house, everybody's able to stay warm throughout winter. That means four or five times the amount of energy consumption in the world today and four or five times the amount of emissions that are taking place today. Would that be a good thing or a bad thing? I'd like you to weigh the pros and cons of this. So on the one hand, CO2 emissions go up. All right, what are the pros and the cons of that? And on the other hand, um, four, five, six billion people improve their lives immensely and improve their living standard and life expectancy and they get to live much better. What exactly can carbon dioxide do that is <laughs> worth more than these five, six billion people living a much better life than each one of those people knowing that their firstborn child has a very good chance of surviving their first five years? What does carbon dioxide have to do? And what evidence do you have for the fact that carbon dioxide is in fact doing this thing that you were told by your cult it is supposed to be doing? Do you have the answer? I don't know. We'll leave it at that. Safe. It's always a goddamn pleasure, sir. Thank you, my man. Thank you for having me. Always fun. All right. Peace and love, freaks. Tiki!